Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Romans. I will be reading from Romans chapter 7, verses 14, uh, just a few verses into chapter 8. Now, I want to warn you, this is not the easiest passage of scripture to listen to. And as you all are on your couches, uh, you might want to take a stiff drink of coffee for this one. Uh, it's, a, it's a critically important text. It's, it's one of the texts that I call the, uh, the, one of the Everett, Everest text uh, for Mount Everest. A uh, few people get to the top of it, and some of us maybe only barely get to um, uh, one of the uh, early stations on the way up to Mount Everest. Uh, why would you preach on a text like this? Every time it comes up, I preach on it because it's there, and it's an important text. So please listen carefully as I read these words from Romans chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when, when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I am slave to the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is the word of the Lord. And the people said, Thanks be to God. I do not do the very thing that I want. But I do the very thing that I hate. It's a puzzling dilemma, isn't it? I want to bring to mind a scene in 1444. To be precise, August the 8th. Prince Henry of Portugal is at the docks on his steed waiting the disembarkment of the goods coming from Africa. 
which include human goods. The enslaved. Now, somebody's taking a record of this. His name is Zurara. Zurara is a royal chronicler of these events. He's a high-ranking official. He is standing or sitting very close to Prince Henry, and he's watching the disembarkment of these goods, including the human goods. He is seeing the enslaved come off the ships and children ripped from their parents and screams and intense suffering. And a tear comes to his eye. And it's extraordinary that in this chronicle, he records his own prayer to God about his conscience. It's a prayer that's seeking to justify what is going on here, but yet he is acknowledging his own sense of feeling and remorse for the people he calls the children of Adam, the slaves that are being brought off the ship. And he's asking God, for an insight into the divine, the divine plan in all of this, the divine design in all of this. For the Pope has given his blessings on it all. The church is giving its blessings. Who is he to feel difficulty? Who is he to shed a tear? But he does. He's seeking from God something that would make this morally palatable. The Apostle Paul again. The good I would do, I do not. But I do the very thing that I hate. The Apostle Paul has already said that the uh, Gentiles who don't know the law have never had it given to them, know it in their hearts. We might call that a conscience. And a guilty conscience is certainly a sign that we, we know the law. We know something is amiss. Robin DiAngelo, in the book that we read, White Fragility, talks about this. She says that uh, moral trauma, trauma did not simply happen to black people, but moral trauma happened to white people, too. It was a different kind of trauma, but it was a trauma nonetheless. A trauma just like the royal chronicler that we have tried to justify for all these years. We've tried to cover up. We've tried to find a design plan in it all. We know the good. We know it. We know it deep in our hearts. And we in our Reformed heritage know it because, because we've given a lot of press to the uh, Ten Commandments, the law. Um, back in the early 80s, uh, 
Dr. John Leith uh, invited, actually required, of his theology class that they read the shorter catechism of, of the Westminster Confession. And uh, before the uh, service this morning, I asked Alec if he was part of that class, and he was. It was, a, it was an amazing thing to see uh, students all around the campus with these little pamphlets walking around memorizing the shorter catechism. Well, one of the things that they would have memorized is questions 68, 69, and 70. Thou shalt not kill. What does it mean? It means to preserve life. And it also means to do no harm. You see, the Reformed heritage in our interpretation of the law, the Ten Commandments in particular, we always extended it. It wasn't just do not kill, but is also to preserve life and to do no harm. But the truth of the matter is, is we didn't need to say that because we know that in our hearts. Zurara, the royal scribe, knew it when he saw the slaves disembarking, when he saw the suffering, and when a tear came to his eye. So what's the problem? Well, according to Paul, it's the problem of the flesh. The law of the flesh, he calls it. Now, let me clear up a few uh, misconceptions about the flesh because, because people think that when Paul is talking about the flesh, he's talking about sexual passion or something like that. And it's a much more encompassing term for Paul than simple uh, uh, matters of sex. It is really about the sins of the society, the prejudices of society, the domination systems of society that get written on us and deform and deface us. That's what he's talking about as the law of the flesh. These are the kinds of things that even distort human law. And it is for this reason that Martin Luther King made a distinction between human laws and divine law. When he said that when um, we do things that are just an offense to us, even if, they, even if they follow a human law, they are no law at all. They don't follow the divine law. You know, the vexing, perplexing, aggravating thing about the story about these uh, Portuguese and the disembarkment of this early story of slavery is that these people were Christians. And they did it under the church's blessing. I can't think of anything more antithetical to the, to the Apostle Paul than something like that. Now, I know that in the history of the interpretation of Paul, some people have suggested that Paul justified slavery, but I want to argue with you about that. And that's another sermon. Because, because I'm remembering this, this pivotal text in the, in, in, in the book of Galatians where Paul says that those who have been baptized have washed away the domination systems of the world based in race and sex and economics. They've been washed free from us. And in this text before us, the Apostle Paul says that in Christ we've been set free from the flesh, from domination systems. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So how can it possibly be 
that Christians throughout all of these years have justified, have, have, have justified the kind of practices that we, have, uh, that we have witnessed throughout our history. Slavery, racism, white supremacy. How can it possibly be? I'll never forget um, reading the great theologian James Cone, who once said that white theology is racist and non-Christian. Now, I must confess that uh, when I read that quote, I was brought up short, to say the least, because I have been a reader of white theology for almost 50 years now. 50 years. Yes, I was a religion major even in college. I've been reading white theology since I was 19 years old. That quote brought me up short. And so I want to extend um, uh, 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 Professor Cohn's comments to ask the question, can you be white and Christian? Now, that's not just meant to be a provocative question. It's, it's a really practical question. It's a question about realism. Because we live in a very violent world. And the systems of violence get written on us. They get inscribed on us. And if, and if, and if, we're, not, if we're not introspective about them, if we don't question them, if we don't ponder them deeply, then I dare say we are formed to be something less than Christian, to be sure. You know, for a number of years now, I have been a, um, I, I, I have pondered deeply, um, even to the point of obsession, the conversion experience of Paul. When I was brought up Southern Baptist, they talked about the Damascus Road experience a lot. And uh, we always assumed that that just meant he became a Christian or something like that and transferred over to the other, to the other side. But the more I look at Paul and the more I look at his conversion experience, first of all, I don't think he became the first Christian. I think he was living out of his Judaism when he affirmed Jesus as Messiah. But second... That conversion experience was a powerful moment for him because the crucified and risen Christ came to him and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? In essence, the risen Christ was saying to Paul, why are you re-crucifying me again? Why are you doing that? Now, it took Paul three years, he tells us in the book of Galatians, in an Arabian desert to sort that kind of thing out. Now, we've been going through a 21-day challenge, and that's just to start. But let's ponder three years of pondering these kinds of things. Because I think the, 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 the question that Paul was pondering is akin to the one Ignacio Elicuria, um, the Salvadoran martyr, who was the president of Central America, asked of first-world Christians when he was looking at his own people, the impoverished, the oppressed. And he asked of us, how have you crucified these people? 
How can you uncrucify them? How can you raise them from the dead? You see, I think that's what Paul was pondering in the Arabian desert. And in our day and time, in our current crisis, in our current moment, it's a Kairos moment. It seems to me that that's what we could be pondering too. For the violence of racism still exists on us and probably will be until the day we die. So introspection about that, self-examination about it is an important part of what we do. I've invited uh, you before, maybe some of you have, have, uh, have heard me say this in Sunday school classes or here or there about renewing your baptism every day. Uh, Martin Luther did it every day, just taking some water and putting it on his forehead. Think about that as a washing away, a washing away of the violence in your life and the violence in our world. And you know, introspection is, is certainly what we're invited to do. In our Reformed heritage, uh, we're mandated to do it uh, before we partake of communion. Because what we do here is a pivotal thing, both baptism and communion. These are, if you don't mind my saying it, political sacraments in that they create a different kind of polis, a different kind of community, a community that is willing to resist and stand against the violence of the world. That's what happens at this table. And it doesn't come just through introspection, although introspection is important. It comes when we realize the gift that is given to us in the bread and the cup. For as Norman Wurzba says, we, we are eating Jesus at this table. We are ingesting the presence of Christ so that our, our lives may, may might take on the shape of Christ for the world. And what that means is this, that just as Jesus proclaimed the reign of God, liberation to the captives, sight to the blind, so we are called to proclaim the same things in our lives, in our community, in our world. Just as Jesus stood against the domination systems of his world, the principalities and powers of his world, so too we are called to do that. Just as Jesus stood with George, the George Floyds and the Trayvon Martins of his world, I dare say became one with them. So also are we called to stand with those who were crucified in our midst, to become one with them on the assurance and the promise that God's resurrection is sure because God brings resurrection for the community of faith and the faith in the world. That's what we're about. On this 4th of July weekend, I cannot think of anything more patriotic than that we really become the body of Christ, not only for our community around us, but for the world a broken world, sorely in need of healing, liberation, and hope. I can't think of a more patriotic thing that we do as we partake of this table, as Jesus takes up a presence in our lives, and our lives are shaped together to be the body 
of Christ in the world. The tears are real. The tears are real. And because of the gift of God in Christ, and because of the power of the Spirit, we can act on those tears. We can act on those tears and bring healing to our world. Let us pray. Oh God, your Spirit moves in us, through us, under us. It is the Spirit of the crucified and risen Christ who empowers us not only to ponder what we're called to be and do, to ponder the law, do not kill, preserve life, do not harm, but to act on it, to be actors in the world that brings life for the community around us and for all in this community of faith. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.